2: Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty. This week, I have a tidbit about the origin of the word bailiwick, and a meaty middle about side dishes and other side words to get you in the mood for Thanksgiving. Let's get started. Have you ever asked someone for a favor and been told, That's not my bailiwick? If so, they turned you down. In short, they said, That's not my specialty. It's not something I'm good at, so you should do it yourself. As you started to work alone and rejected, you might have wondered, what is a bailiwick anyway? A bailiwick is an area that's under the jurisdiction of a bailiff. In the U.S., we think of a bailiff as an official who helps to keep order in a courtroom. They're the people who walk prisoners in and out of the room and escort the jury members to their seats. But in Britain, a bailiff is more like a sheriff— he or she can make arrests, serve court papers to a person, and seize the property of a debtor. There's also the term sheriff wick, but it seems to have fallen out of favor sometime in the eighteen hundreds. An example of a real life bailiwick is the bailiwick of Guernsey, a set of small islands in the English Channel. They're part of England, but they have their own legislative assembly, which is presided over by, you guessed it, a bailiff. So the baila in bailiwick refers to a bailiff. In fact, another form of the word bailiff was also bailey, but that's also now obsolete. And the wick in bailiwick is obsolete. This word used to mean a house or dwelling place, as well as a town, village, or hamlet. It's a very old word derived from the Old English wick, W-I-C, We can trace it back to 900 CE and find it used in Beowulf, in the phrase Wicca Neosian, meaning to go home. Over time, the meaning of Bailiwick as an administrative region was extended to mean one's natural or proper sphere. For example, if a friend asked you to make pecan pie for Thanksgiving, you could decline, saying that baking isn't your Bailiwick. So that's your tidbit for today. When you say, it's not my bailiwick, you mean it's not my thing. It's not something I'm good at or should be doing. That segment was written by Samantha Enslin, who runs Dragonfly Editorial. You can find her at dragonflyeditorial.com or on Twitter as dragonflyedit. And now let's talk about more food with this piece by John Kelly. For a very limited time, Grammar Girl listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Is it rosettastone.com slash grammar? That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash grammar today. We may talk a lot of turkey during the holidays, but U.S. Thanksgiving is really all about the sides. Yes, we pile our plates with mashed potatoes and green beans, but we also feast on the many other great sides the English language has to offer. During the holidays, both sides of the family may gather together out in a relative's home in the countryside. The cook may serve up food on a sideboard with the stuffing cooked on the inside of a bird. At dinner, some may take sides of political controversy, while others may just stay on the sidelines—of the American football game on TV, that is, where a ref may flag a player who's offside. A distant aunt may pull an unsuspecting nephew aside for some colorful side comments. That's better than her husband, who corners a cousin about the new siding on his house. Besides the family drama, too much food will split sides, as will the convivial laughter. Celebrants can cap the meal with a postprandial snooze. How about sideways on the sofa, right by the fireside? The drowsiness is surely just a side effect of all the turkey's tryptophan, not the booze, of course. English really dishes up the sides. This may not be surprising, as the words had a lot of time to develop in the language. The Oxford English Dictionary dates side back to Old English, when, much as now, it named the sides of the body. Side has many cognates in the Germanic languages, but its ultimate origins are unclear. Proposing a Proto-Germanic root, philologist Walter Skeet has suggested an earlier literal meaning of that which is extended. This is possibly connected to another early side in Old English this one meaning long and spacious. Let's have a look at or taste of some other particularly interesting side words in English. If we have a hard time paying attention, we might easily get sidetracked. This term is derived from the 19th-century side tracks of railroads. If we want to avoid a touchy topic, we might sidestep it in a conversation a word first recorded in military marches near the backside, shall we say, of the 1700s. In such a conversation, we might digress with many sidebars, which U.S. journalists were using by the late 1940s to refer to articles secondary to the feature story in a newspaper. The figurative sense was in place by the early 1950s. A sideshow may have been, no hoax, a coinage of the great showman P.T. Barnum. He refers to it as a temporary enterprise alongside his main attraction, as the OED first records the word in 1855. A sidekick is also first found in American English. It's backformed from sidekicker, documented at least by the start of the 1900s for a close but lesser pal. The kick may originally have meant to walk or wander, yielding to kick around or kick about. Another stateside word is sideburns. This facial hair is named after Ambrose Burnside, an American Civil War general noted for the particular way he groomed his whiskers. Here, the OED quotes the Cincinnati Inquirer in 1875, Quote, "...his whisker was of the Burnside type, consisting of a mustache and mutton chop, the chin being perfectly clean," Unquote. Maybe you recall that records had A-sides and B-sides. Another term for the B-side was the flip side, dated to the late 1940s. The B-side typically featured the lesser tracks of a recording, although on the flip side lives on as a positive consideration of some matter. Like flip side, we can also speak of the upside or downside of some event. While upside and downside have long been in the language, these substantive uses for advantage and disadvantage, respectively, trace back to the early 20th century, when they were used to describe the movement of share prices in the stock market. Upside down is far older, at least in sense. The OED dates it back to the 1300s, but the phrase took a different form early on, up-so-down. Speakers shaped the word into UPSET down and UPSIDE down, which stuck since the usage of SO was unusual, the OED explains. SIDLE, to edge sideways, also features some curious linguistic changes at work. The verb is actually a back-formation of sidling, which was an adverb meaning sideways, but whose ing sounds like the progressive tense or a present participle in English. In the word sidling, however, this ing is actually part of ling, an old adverbial suffix in the language. Not to be left out, ling got confused with long, long, another adverbial suffix seen in sidelong. Sports fans, especially of American football, may well be familiar with blindsided— as the OED notes, the term deriving from blind side, actually dates back to the very early 1600s, referring to the weak side of a person or thing. Bedside manner may also strike some as a relatively new phenomenon, but it is in fact recorded by the mid-1800s. Finally, two words that are surprisingly younger than many may suppose are insider and outsider— Insider is documented by 1848 and in the context of the stock exchanges, which makes it roughly contemporary to Sunnyside. In an observation made last year by lexicographer Peter Sokolowski, outsider has been spiking in the American language due to the political outsider status some Republican Party presidential candidates were touting. Sokolowski also notes it appears in 1800 in a letter by Jane Austen. The OED attests this, too referring to some outsiders to a card game. But like gravy, many like to keep their politics on the side on Thanksgiving. That segment originally appeared on the Oxford Words blog and appears here with permission. John Kelly is an educator, writer, and word nerd who blogs about etymology at mashedradish.com and about Shakespeare at shakespeareconfidential.com. Thanks to the people who wrote reviews and told me where they listen this week. Coolger left a nice review at iTunes and Jack, or maybe pronounce Jacques, listens in Lithuania, where he teaches a university course on comic books. He, along with other people, pointed out that Batman was originally referred to as the Batman, which may help explain why Batman seems to be the preferred plural in the Batman universe. I'm going to be traveling for the holidays, and I have some family stuff going on, so I'm going to be recording a bit ahead of time and out of order for the next few weeks, which means I probably won't have listener shoutouts for a while, but know that I'll see your posts and reviews and enjoy and appreciate them. It's been a great year hearing from all of you. Grammar Girl is part of the Quick and Dirty Tips podcast network, and you can find all my articles and old podcasts at quickanddirtytips.com. If you're looking for something new to add to your podcast list, check out my fellow Quick and Dirty Tips hosts. Maybe the Get Fit Guy to get you started working off all those side dishes, or the Savvy Psychologist to help you cope with your family. I'm Mignon Fogarty. That's all. Thanks for listening.